0: If you would, grab a Bible or a device, turn it to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Those of you here last week, you'll notice, hey, we were in John last week. You're right, but we have to complete a section of Scripture that ties together really well and really directs us to think about what it looks like to be the church. We are in a series titled Church. We were talking about like what is a church? Um, what are the characteristics? Like, how do you do church? Um, of course, we are the church. If if you're in Christ, you are the church. But the church has historically, even going back to the Garden of Eden, met in a place and a time. So we we are a gathering too. So um, going back, in fact, uh, a couple of weeks uh, just to catch you up, uh, we first off talked about just that basic question, what is church? And and we talked about it being a gathering of God's chosen ones. And one of the things that I really didn't bring out that I think is probably important uh, to say is the operative word there, God. God does that. Um, Rick doesn't call us to gather as chosen ones every Sunday. I know we make a schedule and We have a church calendar and all that. I get all that. But ultimately, I don't do any of that, and we don't gather because I made a schedule or we made a schedule. God gathers us. It's what he's always done. He's always gathered his people together. And so we gather not in anyone's name or any church's name. We gather in Jesus's name. And so if I missed anything of that in that first week, I just want to apologize because I think that's important to say that God gathers us. Um, secondly, last week we went more into the, the question, if if that's what a church is, um, well then start thinking through what does a church look like, um, like, like practically speaking, and while this wasn't... The most practical thing, probably, or tangible thing is probably a better way of saying that. Uh, it's a little hard to grasp, um, but, but we are the people that bring the presence of God with us. It doesn't mean the presence of God is limited to us. He is here whether we show up or not. Like if two people show up to our worship services, he is here, right? Um, but we also are promised that there's something multiplied about us coming in and what we bring of the presence of God that we have communed with throughout the week. And so, unfortunately, and sometimes noticeably, when we have simply not tethered our spiritual lives to the Lord we proclaim to believe in and we worship, we talk a lot about him, but we don't know him. You know, when, when, when that's true of us, when we can talk about it, but we can't talk about him we generally don't come into this place with a strong sense of collective presence of God. Meaning, God has not allowed us or will not allow us to take what we have not uh, fed ourselves on throughout the week. And so we come in with a very weak sense of God's presence in our life. And sometimes when we do that, the God of 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 our many mercies that we experience shows up and brings his presence to us in this place. Thank God he does that. But I do know it's a blessing both to one another and um, gives him much glory when we come in having spent time in his presence this week. And so I just encourage you to be a people of God's presence during the week. Spend time with Jesus. Don't know, just don't know about him. Know him. Know him. Know him well. With that said... Um, we are in John 15. We're going to start in verse 12 today. I'm going to read it. I'm going to say a few comments, and then we're going to reread the verse again. Um, starting in verse 12 This is my command love one another as I have loved you, or correspondingly to the way I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I heard something audible there should strike you. It really should. I appointed you to go and produce fruit, and that your fruit should remain, so that whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you. Love one another. So he starts off with the command, love one another. He ends with the command, love one another. And what is implied but not stated clearly in case you didn't catch it, everything in between gives us something of some guide rails as to what it looks like to love one another. While it might not have been immediately apparent to you, that is what Jesus is doing. He's a clever and amazing teacher, (laughs) Um, the best right I mean I can say that right uh, I can never say I'm the best teacher I can never say someone who you know on uh, and follow on Twitter is the best but Jesus was the best absolute best teacher a communicator of his message and so when he says it in a way that comes from left field or feels unexpected or we're not really sure what to make of love one another and what everything he says in between means to all that well, it's time to think about it a little, little, little clearer and to look at it a little closer. And that's why we're going to reread it here in just a moment after I, I make a few comments. By the way, um, one of the things that I want to at least give you prepped for is what he's getting here is um, helping us understand what it looks like to have the kind of posture of heart that makes you a person who loves others. What actually stirs the posture of heart That's what we're going to get at. But what is love? A choice, an act of the will, an emotion, a trait of some sort, a little of all these things, something more, something intangible that you can't even define. Well, if, as the Bible says, God is love, and it does say that in 1 John 4, 8, meaning he, God, is the source of all that we can know, all that we can experience, all that we can imagine, regarding love, then it begs the question, this is an important question, especially for our day and age, actually for any day and age, how can you and I possibly, confidently, and sometimes casually and flippantly presume an inerrant or self-evident understanding of love? Like, we say this is loving or that is loving, and Sometimes it is, and sometimes we're right, you know. Um, Sometimes I'm right, blind squirrel gets a nut sometimes, right, Um, but but sometimes I'm just saying my opinion, (laughs) right? And I think it's loving. And we know love is a little more dynamic, it's involving actual people, and loving people is sometimes complicated, and even Jesus knows this, and even Jesus relates this, when he's presented with a prostitute. It's interesting the most loving response is to know that the Pharisee who recognizes that a woman is acting inappropriate with him. I'm speaking, of, I'm speaking of when Mary actually came and washed his feet with her tears, used her hair, pulled down her hair, which is an alluring, very... It's something you didn't do in the sight of anyone but your husband, in their culture. I'll just say it that way. And yet the Pharisee who criticized this, he knew the Pharisee was self-righteous. And so, what does the Pharisee need? Well, Jesus gives him what he needs in his words. The Pharisee needs to know that he needs. He needs to know that he needs forgiveness. That's what the Pharisee needs to know. But that's not the first place he goes to the person he loves. Her through knowing that she's accepted. That's her, his first step with her. Now eventually, he gets to, you also need forgiveness. <laughs> of course. But this is what I mean. He loved both of them. He loved the Pharisee. He loved the woman. And both he loved in different ways because people are dynamic. And at different points, they may need different things. Even though there are some consistencies things that we all need. We all need forgiveness, right? Some of us already feel acceptance before our Heavenly Father, but we all need forgiveness. (laughs) We all need that. And so if God is love, then we should know that love has some depths to it. That means we probably shouldn't treat the word in flippant ways. We shouldn't say that we confidently know what it means indisputably in a certain search situation and have great disdain for those that just don't get it. And I can't speak for you on that, but I can speak for myself. And Speaking for myself, I have a lot to learn about loving people. I have a ton to learn I have a lot to learn about being loving. And uh, as I shared with the first service, that's a difficult admission for someone that has a keen interest on the subject and definition of love as described in the Bible. In fact, in the earliest days of City View, one of the things I did is I preached out of 1 Corinthians 13 probably 10 different times in about two years. And not necessarily on Sunday mornings. I did it in men's groups or in other studies and whatnot. But I I went back to that well over and over. Just to convince people that love might not be what they think it means. (laughs) And, and, And that the Bible is the best thing to use to understand what love is. For the author of life and he who is love knows what love is. But despite the fact that I spent a lot of my time and still hold a great interest in what the Bible has to teach us about love and try to banner it whenever I can, I have a ton to learn. A ton to learn. Um, I feel like the disciples, when Jesus invites three of them to go with him to a mountain, and on that mountain, something really crazy happened. Like, all of a sudden, a cloud descended, Moses, who's dead, Elijah, who's dead, shows up. They show up. And all of a sudden, the disciples kind of see Jesus, and Jesus doesn't look like Jesus, normal Jesus. (laughs) He looks a lot more glorified in his presence of his Father. And, of course... This is where I feel like the disciples. They go, This is good that we're here. Let's build tents. What? So that we can stay here. Let's build tents. That's how I feel sometimes when I struggle to know and act on what I think is loving and even further try to apply it to everyone else in all situations, in all places. I feel a little like the disciples, I feel a little silly. And fortunately, sometimes the Lord is graceful. And like he did in their situation, he reminds me, Jesus is my son. He's my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. Don't listen to the voices in your head. Don't listen to everything that you think. Listen to him. Luke 9.35 Jesus agrees with this and says it yet another way. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So perhaps you, like me, have a lot to learn. Um, Perhaps you, like me, have not taken the words of God the Father to heart nearly as much as you should have. And when you hear, listen to him, my son, Jesus, you know that's me. I need to listen to him more, or the invitation of Jesus himself, learn from me. Perhaps you, like me, could afford to listen and learn more and perhaps talk as well as assume, presume, and generally stay in your own head a whole lot less. At the very least, perhaps we could see that if what we are doing or not doing just isn't working in our lives, you know, just kind of my rhythms, my ways. What I do, it's just not working. Like it's not growing me spiritually or, or what I'm not doing. It's just not working out. Perhaps it's, perhaps it's time to disrupt our current thinking and habits by a renewed pursuit of listening and learning, to G, learning from Jesus. Maybe that's a good start, a good start to our plan. And at its heart, today's passage shows us a Jesus that is inviting us actually to do just that, and this is incredible. If you came here and you need that, Jesus in this passage is just like wooing and inviting us to do just that. Listen and learn from me. My yoke is easy. I have something to tell you. And he's going to tell them the gospel, but he's going to do it in such creative and interesting ways that relate to us loving one another. It's just really fascinating And so today's passage reminds us that the church, God's people, are to be a people characterized by the attribute or characterization of God himself, love. We are to be a community of love. Jesus devotes his entire dialogue in these six verses, helping us understand how to love one another. So with that said, and with the knowledge that it is good to hear these words and let them influence our heart posture this morning, Let us reread these. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore. Because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask in the Father, in my name, he will give to you. This is what I command you. Love one another. So in what we have just read again, we see that our ability to love one another is seemingly Hardwired to our experiencing God's love and what He has done for us in the gospel. We shouldn't be surprised by that, by the way. Jesus doesn't give us a list of things to do. Now, He does tell us one thing to do love one another in accordance to or corresponding to how I have loved you. He does tell us that. But from there, He doesn't really give us this checklist, this to do list. In other words, what he does there, he just speaks to us gospel truth after truth after truth. And so, somewhere in that gospel truth, he is telling us quite clearly what it looks like to begin the journey of posturing our heart to really deeply, sincerely love one another. There are at least five truths. And these are meant to stir love and loving ways to overflow, overflow from the gospel's transformation of our own hearts. Five truths from this text, I think, could be, uh, should we let them this morning, be life transformational for us as we pursue Jesus' command, love one another. The first one is this. He says this one right off the bat. Christ died for you. Christ died for you. Oh, yeah, Rick, I learned that back in vacation Bible school, 1997. Christ died for me. Yeah, good, the gospel. Got it. Christ died for you. I'm not the most emotional guy in the world, but let me just encourage you. Could you feel that for just a moment? He died for you. He died for you. He died for me. Christ died for me as a sacrificial act, as for a friend. That is crazy. Absolutely bonkers, friends. Christ shouldered. Just can we unpack just what that means? He shouldered. In dying for me, sacrificially, he didn't just die as in, like, my kid is in front of a train, doesn't realize they're in front of a train, I push him out of the way, I get smushed. I just died for my child, right? And, and probably it didn't hurt that bad because, well, you get hit by a train, you generally just don't feel a lot. It is an immediate numbing, as I understand it, and you're gone. What Jesus did was so radically sacrificial in a way that we've never sacrificed for others. Radically sacrificial. He shouldered and took on my sins. And not my sins. If you're in Christ, if you follow him, he shouldered your sins too. And all those before me and all those after me, all of the world who has ever trusted and followed Christ... He shouldered those sins before a holy God, the Father. A kid who's done wrong, known they do, they've done wrong, pretty sure they're caught, stands in front of his father, that is not a good place to be. It's, it's a hard place to be. I've been there, I've been caught, stood there, know how that feels. You are shouldering and have become... You've encompassed the sins of all the world and you stand before your Holy Father. There was only one thing for Jesus to experience and that is the full-on, unblockable wrath of God. For disobedience and sin, all the wrath of God fell on Christ on the cross. His suffering, his sacrifice was not like ours. Our best sacrifices will never match us, and his suffering will never match our sufferings. And I'm not talking about the physical suffering because I know in practical terms, a lot of people have suffered some really, really bad things in this world. Maybe even more so physically than what Christ did on the cross, but that's not the suffering that Christ most suffered from. It was, my my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? To have left holy communion with Father, Son, and Spirit, and the Son, exercised out of that, forsaken. He was forsaken so that we can sing the words we sung just a minute ago I'm not forsaken. I'm not forsaken because He was on my behalf. What must that have been like for the wrath of God? He's technically in God's presence still because God's presence can't just leave. He is everywhere, but it's a special kind of presence, one that only invites wrath, severed from the life-giving connection he has with his heavenly Father. He did that for me and you and us if we're in Christ unreal. He did it intentionally. It said his face was set to the cross. It always was. He was set to the cross. He was intent on it. He didn't just wander into it. You and I sometimes wander into opportunities for sacrifice. We didn't really mean to do that, but we get credit for sacrifice. (laughs) You got a bonus. Someone had a need. You had an opportunity to basically use your bonus to give them a need. You really didn't sacrifice. You weren't expecting that money, and that, that really isn't. You're giving what really you weren't expecting anyway. That's not what the cross was. It was an intentional, purposeful, to the cross motion of his life. He did this while I was, and this is the biggest deal, while I was his enemy. While I was his enemy. Now I know he said he did it in an act of friendship, but make no mistake, Romans 5 eight makes it clear in that moment I was his enemy. And he did it for me despite the fact I was his enemy. So what does that mean for me? What does it mean for me to ponder and meditate and to be stirred in heart and to alter my posture and considering? Like, what does that do for my ability to love others? Personally, I will choose to be inconvenienced in many ways, sometimes mostly small ways. I don't make big S sacrifices a lot of the time. I guess is you would say you probably don't either. But what does it look like when you fully grasp the gravity and depth of how much you've been sacrificed for? What kind of posture does that make for your heart to know what Jesus did for you, to think on that, to pray on that, and to let that just wash over you a little bit? Can't you see and can't you imagine how that might do something for how you approach others and how you would be loving towards them when I consider Christ's death on my behalf and and then therefore choose to die myself in the manner of Christ? I am loving another. You know, Jesus here says he lays down his life for us. Well, he hadn't died on the cross yet. So is he just implying what is about to happen? I don't think so. I mean, he might be. But here's what I do know. He laid down his life to even come to us in the first place on planet Earth. What we are about to celebrate later this fall into the winter, the first advent Christmas is we celebrate that God sacrificed greatly in inner human skin. He has laid down his life in that. He has laid down his life to be the second Adam, to be a new start, a fresh start. And of course, he'll sacrifice on the cross. It's beautiful. I'm loving another when I die to myself day in and day out. And he makes us know, make sure we know that the gospel is a story about sacrifice and what it does to us and produce, produce sacrificial people. When I, like Jesus, or not like Jesus, like the crowd, get fed a lot, get a lot of blessings because of my faith, much like he fed the crowd, I get reminded, I didn't feed you bread just to, so that your bellies would be full so that you would also lay down your life. He says, I have come. I have come, and you must take up your, your cross daily and follow me. Every time the crowd gets a little too comfortable with God's blessings, he reminds them of death, either his own or death to ourselves. I can only die self in as much as my heart is postured by the death of Christ on my behalf. If you have a hard time sacrificing recently, perhaps meditating on Christ's great, unmatchable sacrifice on your behalf will stir your heart to love others in a different way that you're maybe not doing well right now. Second thing we see here, God of this universe whom I serve has made me his friend. (laughs) He's made me his friend. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. You are my friends. I am God's servant, by the way, and he's not trying to imply that you're not his servant. You are his servant, but he wants you to really understand in this moment for you to love others, you definitely have got to understand that you're his friend. You are God's friend. To only be a servant, in fact, I would say, can sometimes cause me to find a convenient escape hatch on missing God's kindness in his amazing friendship for me and miss out on what he has for me for others. Sometimes I can bury myself in service. Now, I know that's not all your all story. Some of y'all probably don't serve enough. But again, I just think it's really encouraging to understand, though, he's saying you want to love others, you need to understand not that he's your master and that you're his servant. That's true. But you really need to understand that you're his friend, that he befriends you, Think about how radically this really is, the difference, the differences between us. Imagine the most awkward, hard-to-love person ever from your life and history. Someone saying, it's me. <laughs> or I'm loving me. I mean, just think about it. Like, And you befriended them. And even though they kind of wear on you, they wear you down, beat you down a little bit here and there, in the end, you kind of feel good about the fact that you've sacrificed and befriended someone that really not many people befriend. Why do you feel good? You feel good because, well, I'm a little bit more of a normal person. They're more of a socially awkward person. I tend to be able to be measured in my words and say things in ways and and they seem to blurt things or seem to not know how to talk very good with people and man, such a difference between us And, and so we feel good in proportionality to how much we think they are weirder than us. How must God feel that he calls us his friend? The gap between me and God in every way is a billion Grand Canyons. <laughs> he befriended me. I am so unlovely and not worth being a friend to in comparison to God and in his presence, and yet he befriends me. Unreal, guys. This is unreal. Like He's inviting us to meditate on some really Absurd truths. He calls you friend. So, what does that mean for me? Well, on the obvious, it's not really a puff your chest moment to be friend people. It's a honor and privilege and a proper echoing of what God has done for me in making his friend. And so being a friend and invite friendship, that's on the obvious. On the less obvious, maybe consider or think long and hard on what on what we are accepting instead of friendship with others. What are we accepting instead of friendship? Because we're getting our relational energy in some way, our relational needs met in some way. It's my conviction and my... It's sadness to believe that we've traded family and friendship in our world today for tribes and ideological gangs. But here's the beautiful thing. He still calls you friends, and invites you to live in that truth and that that posture would rearrange your priorities to say no to tribes and ideological gangs. He paints a picture of a people of God who don't think all the same things, who come from different places in life. The context of their lives is different, they vote for different people. But what we all have in common, what we are united on, is we come in here, people who did not deserve God's friendship. And we come in here befriended by God. We all enter this place. God made me his friend. Do you know why you're here? I don't know why I'm here. So all the other differences fade based upon this one cataclysmic, if we let it, in disrupting our norms, this cataclysmic truth that God is our friend. We are the befriended by God who gather together, misfits otherwise, incompatibles otherwise. But God befriends us. Beautiful. The importance that I have that in common with you is more important than most of the other things I put stock in that I think should be common with us. third the all-knowing all-sovereign God has also invited me me and you if you're in Christ into his plans and given me an outrageously privileged part to play in his plans again absurd absolutely absurd I do not call you servants anymore because a servant does not know his ma- what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. This is what I'm doing. This is what I've done. This is what I'm going to do. He just laid it all out for them and by extension us. Like, like he's, not, he's not playing coy. He's not holding back. I know we think he's holding back. That's why we continually go back to the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thinking that he's told us not to have something that is good for us. But he has given us all we need for life and godliness. All that we need. He says, this is what I'm doing. In fact, this is what I am doing from God, and his mouth is far greater than the power and significance we often get by juicy pieces of information and gossip from others' confidence. You know what I'm talking about, right? Someone tells you a little piece of gossip, a little piece of information you didn't know. Say so you have a friend, he's a secret service agent, he happens to have detail on the, on the president of the United States, and he gives you a little juicy bit of, of gossip on how the president spends his Wednesday nights. You're like, oh, wow. That's nothing that anyone else knows. I get to share this piece of information that no one knows. You have power. You have significance. You know what I'm talking about, right, guys? This is what drives gossip. But he tells us the most fantastic stuff that you can ever know, starting with the gospel, that the kingdom of God is at hand that he has come to save, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He has come to tell us it's the best stuff. And the best stuff to unreliable and untrustworthy people. Can't speak for you. I was unreliable in being someone who had the most precious news on the planet, multiple times this week. I was unreliable. I am often untrustworthy with the precious news of God's love for the world in giving His one and only Son. If you're like me and you know way too often you're untrustworthy and you can't be counted on, consider Consider the weight and gravity of what he has shared with you. He has shared with you the best news on the planet, the best news that anyone will ever hear and will sing praises about from here to eternity. So, what does it mean? Well, on the one hand, it means we choose to be a collaborative people. I think that's loving to be collaborative, to be inviting to one another into the gospel's work in our own lives how our story intersects with his story and being able to talk about that with one another, to talk about our steps forward, our steps backwards, sideways, obedience, disobedience. Because God's all in it, either in the blessing of allowing us and giving us the power to do right in what he commands or the grace to be forgiven for what we either do or don't do that is not right but it's still the story of his excellencies. And we can share those with one another. So that's on the one hand, but on the other hand, we also, in having this news, invite others into the news that God's enemies can be his friends. That other people we know in our lives who we know are kind of enemies of God, they can be his friends. In fact, I would say this is news you cannot gossip about. <laughs> this is news that you can't talk about enough. I would say be indiscriminate and free with the gospel in a way that betrays a posture that says, I have just been told the most amazing news ever. And it obviously is the best thing I could ever tell anyone. Fourth, and I don't, I don't end on this, but I could, because it's powerful, it's succinct, And it means so many things to loving one another. You did not choose me. I chose you. I chose you. God chose me. If you are in Christ, he chose you. While I was there choosing my own way, choosing my own flesh, minding my own business, he chose me. He pulled me out. He gave my dead heart a beating life that I could not drudge or create on my own. He chose me. What does this mean for me? Well, Someone who knows and meditates on and considers what he's doing here. Again, this is this is brilliant teaching on Jesus' behalf. He wants to communicate one of the ways that you understand how to love one another is to know that I chose you. Because someone who knows they were chosen by God while they were dead, in the grave, without any hope, without any merits to offer God, someone who knows that generally is not... An arrogant person and is not a person who has entitlement as an initial lead step, a set of demands in their relationships with others. It produces a humility, a gratitude. A sense of of blessedness. It is hard for me to interact with people in ways that are entitled, judgmental, and heavy handed when I have properly meditated on and embedded the absurdity of God choosing me. It's absurd. I should have been picked not last to be on the team. I should have been picked not at all. When you understand and believe that, the posture completely changes. You are now being equipped to love one another as Christ has loved us. He chose me when I would have never chosen him. This is love and it leads to the last point God has appointed me to bear fruit right after the passage we just read I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain in that whatever you ask the Father in my name he will give you follow me just a bit on what this means I'm going to say it and then I'm going to explain it this means you were a person that walks with a God-guaranteed seal of success. What do you mean, success? Well, there's a creation mandate. We're to spread the image of God throughout all the earth. It's going to give glory to God and spread his glories. And that creation mandate, hand-in-hand, works with the Great Commission. In the gospel, the Great Commission has re-enabled us to live out the creation mandate. To spread God's glory through the making of many more disciples of Jesus. And he has appointed me to bear fruit. And this is where it gets. It says this. says, I've appointed you to produce fruit that your fruit should remain so that in that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give you That is the Bible's way of saying, you may pray for things that don't happen, but you will always have success in the fruit that God desires you to produce in as much as you are walking in step with the Spirit. I mean, you, you are going to produce His fruit. There is success. You can now have success and walk with success as your destiny going forward. Think about what that means. Again, people who walk as if they're always two ounces short and a quarter of a mile away are always trying to prove something and are always trying to strive for something. It is hard to love other people when you are doing that because people become something you can climb over to get where you're going or to get those extra two ounces you need. When you believe Jesus gave you all that you need and has guaranteed your success in producing fruit, other people are no longer tools. You are free now to love them. You are now free to love them as Christ has loved you. In the early days of the church, they would have feasts, well, these were attached to the, the Lord's risen day worship, like what we're doing. We'd worship and then we'd feast. A part of that was also the communion meal of feasting on the body and bread of Christ, which is actually a better feast. <laughs> but, but what they began to be known as, this, this language is actually used by some of the historians of the time, is they called them, rightly enough love feasts love dinners because what they were doing in their gathering as a church as the chosen ones so displayed the marks of loving one another that there was no other attribute to the kind of a feast it was it wasn't a birthday feast well, it wasn't a wedding feast. It's a love feast. That's what they attributed to it. What would it be like if people knew the church as a place that whatever they did, you attached onto it the word love because they have so loved one another well because they have known the love of the Father through Christ so well. This is our pathway to love one another. Let's pray.